looking back now, I think I definitely had an attitude, which, you know, in part is just, you get that just from living in New York and, and working on all this stuff and being around that energy all the time. And then kind of coming back and you kind of realize like, no one cares. No one cares that you've done all that stuff. And who are you trying to impress and all that, all those sorts of things. And really just getting to a place of being content in your own skin and in your own mind. And so that was, that was a large part of that. And then at the same time, yeah, it gave me an opportunity to, to really start the whole painting move without having to, you know, because swapping careers in your thirties is hard no matter what you do, but to be a painter where it's like notorious for not earning any money, it just seemed kind of like a practical thing to do as well. Do you love your business? You should, right? Well, sometimes we just don't. It's my hope that this, the My Daily Business Coach podcast, helps you regain a little of that lost love by providing tips and tactics, tools, insights, inspiration, all the good stuff to help you actually enjoy running your business. In addition to actionable tips and tactics that you'll be able to execute immediately, you'll also hear from creative small business owners around the world who've been able to sidestep the hustle and build a business that merges their passion with their purpose and provides a profit. I'm your host, Fiona Kalaki, founder of My Daily Business Coach. Let's get going. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the My Daily Business Coach podcast. Today is an interview episode and I'm really, I'm so excited to be bringing you this interview because it's with an amazing small business owner currently based in New Zealand. This interview is with one of my all-time best, 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 best friends in the entire world, Paul Dara, aka B Modern. We recorded this interview a few months ago now before the second wave of coronavirus hit, at least hit in Melbourne. So just a heads up, there was a little bit of background noise and we have done our best. My editor and I have done our best to edit this out, but hopefully it's not too distracting and hopefully the content makes up for it. Now, Paul Dara, besides being my best friend, <laughs> is an artist, he's a designer, and he's a painter. And you can check out some of his work on Instagram. He's just at bmodern1, as in the numeral one. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes. I met him first and we became friends around 2004, 2005, when he applied for a role at the magazine company that I was working as an editor at. I was editor then of Fashion Journal, Stew, and Precinct, which was a magazine that came out from David Jones, one of the big department stores here in Australia. And this was the very first time that I was involved with hiring anyone. We had advertised for a graphic designer, art director, and Paul applied for that role. And on his application, and this is way back in the day when we had paper applications for jobs, he had designed this little logo that was almost a silhouette of his head. And I just thought it was super cool and interesting and it really stood out from everyone else. And so we brought him in for an interview and I was just blown away. It was like instant friendship. He was just so warm, so creative, so inspiring, so funny, and we were just on the same wavelength. And we spent a lot of time at work. For both of us, in fact, 
for most of us in the fashion journal office, it was our first real job, you know, working in a career role. And so we worked hard. We really did. There were plenty of nights that we were there eating pizza because I think it was like if you stayed after 9.30, you got free food. And obviously we were all on really low pay, (laughs) really low salaries at that stage. And so, yeah, we were like, oh, dinner will be paid for. Cool. And so we worked hard. We would come into the office early. We would leave late and often we would be there on weekends. And so when you're in that environment, you just naturally form a relationship. And so I found myself finding my first real best friend outside of my high school friends. It was actually at his birthday party in 2006 that I met the man who is now my husband. And in the three years that Paul and I worked together at First Media, Paul was absolutely my go-to. He was my go-to for everything from hitting the clubs <laughs> to talking about serious life matters. We would get pastries on Sundays and we would dance and we would drink and we would just we just had an amazing time. It was one of the best times of my life when I look back to those kind of early years of my career and Paul was a huge part of that. He then upped and left me. He left me for New York and he stayed there for the next decade. He worked in some incredible companies for amazing campaigns as a designer and an art director. And he even started his own business, Manhattan Born, which boasted companies like MTV amongst their client list. And at one point he did the graphics for an awesome Rihanna film clip. And I was, and I am now, blown away with his attitude towards his craft. Whether he's working on a giant billboard for Times Square or he was working on, you know, a friend's logo, he would dedicate himself to making the best possible work that he could. And of course, I saw that firsthand while working alongside him at the magazine. And I've also witnessed it so many times since watching his career blossom as a friend and a cheerleader on the sidelines. It has been a hard thing to write this introduction, to write for someone you admire and respect so deeply. You know, Paul has been such a rock for me in so many parts of my life, but especially in all of my creative pursuits and in the running of my business. Even, you know, before I had any ideas for a business, when we were still in our early 20s, he was such an enthusiastic supporter of me reaching out to magazine editors to write for places like Cool Hunting or Refinery29 or Flux in the UK or Empty in Australia or Monocle. He is one of my absolute favourite people to talk to. He can go from answering you know, existential questions and having these really serious DMs about culture and art and humanity through to you know talking about what's up with The Real Housewives and reciting Bette Midler films. Paul is incredibly determined and he's dedicated to creativity and he's someone who I really believe that he's someone who even if he won millions of dollars and he never had to work again for financial reasons, he would always still be creating. He would choose to create and make art and design. It's just who he is. He's always creating. He's always innovating. In this interview, we discuss what it was like for a kid from the tiny town of Matamata in New Zealand to move to Melbourne in his late teens and then to make this massive move on a one-way ticket and spend a decade in New York. We also discuss some of the darker times in Paul's life whilst he was in New York and how he found a new sense of himself and of creativity after choosing to live a more sober life. Paul now lives back in New Zealand and he's recently switched careers from graphics and art direction through to becoming an established artist and painter. And we discuss what was that like, you know, coming back to a country that you call home, but you haven't lived in for most of your adult life. And also what it's like to change careers in your mid thirties and go into such a hugely competitive area like painting and art. Like I said before, if you want to check out his artwork, you can find that and you can connect with Paul over on Instagram at bmodern1, like the numeral one. So 
as I've said all of this, you know, I feel like I just can't get it across enough that Paul is just such an incredible soul. I have been lucky enough to know him for more than 15 years now, and he's been a constant source of inspiration and encouragement and support and ideas and just creativity throughout that time. He is my go-to for a good old chat, and he's one of the nicest people that you'll ever, ever meet. So here it is, my interview with Paul Dara, aka Be Modern, artist, painter, and designer. All right, I'm so excited to be here with one of my best friends in the whole world and an amazing small business owner, Paul Dara, aka Be Modern. So welcome, Paul. Hi, thanks, Fiona. <laughs> what is this year about? It's crazy, huh? Like 2020 has just been craziness after craziness. So how are you feeling today and how has kind of COVID affected your business and your life? I'm feeling good. During the actual lockdown, in, here in New Zealand, we had a month really hardcore lockdown where we couldn't do anything really except go to the supermarket. So before that went into place, I stocked up on canvas and, you know, I had enough paint and brushes and all that. So that was a really good time for me just to knuckle down and create a bunch of artwork. Mm-hmm. So that was really good. Before that, two weeks before I had an exhibition opening here, And so that was kind of truncated due to the lockdown. And then in April, I was supposed to have an exhibition in Melbourne, which has now been postponed kind of indefinitely sometime in 2021. So anything kind of international is definitely on hold because that had always been part of my MO was to be based in New Zealand and work in New Zealand, but still be doing stuff overseas. So that's good because it's forced me to explore avenues domestically. So I've, I've just booked another exhibition here in New Zealand for October. Yeah. It's had, had a bit of an impact, but it sounds like, and I know that this is quite in your personality, you were quite prepared as well, you know, stocking up on your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, I, I sort of pride myself on being pretty resilient and, you know, really rolling with the punches because there's only so long you can sit around complaining you know, the situation that's happened. And because it's happened to basically every single person on the planet, there's no point in complaining because we're all in the same boat together. So I'm very much of the mindset like, okay, well, this is the hand, you know, we've been dealt. How can we move forward from here with what we have and the restrictions that we have? Yeah, yeah. that is part of why I love you because you're always <laughs> so positive and just get on with it kind of yeah. attitude. But having said that, you know, I do know you really well. We are best friends and I know your business journey exceptionally well as well. But for people who don't know your business and they've heard a little bit in the intro just now, what is Be Modern and like when did it start and why did you start it? And can you kind of walk us through kind of your career path right now with your to date, I guess, with your business? Yeah, sure thing. So Be Modern, actually, that started when I was at uni, still at design school down in Wellington here in New Zealand. And that was born out of, I would go to the public library and make these collages out of photocopying old life magazines from the 1960s and old 1960s encyclopedias. The term Be Modern was written in an old ad or something. And so I cut that out and juxtaposed it in a collage and it just kind of stuck. I really liked to have it as a name because it's sort of telling you to do something. And then this idea of modernity 
has always resonated with me because that has relevance in modern art, which I love. The idea of being modern to me, it's, it's not really contemporary. It's sort of timeless. So, I, yeah, I think for those reasons, it just kind of stuck. So it started out almost as like, you know, like an artist moniker when I was doing, you know, wheat paste ups and stuff like that in Wellington. Yeah, it's just kind of stuck throughout the years. But it, in the same time, it's, it's almost like Be Modern is an alter, alter ego of Paul Dara mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, musicians have a different name. And so I suppose it's a way that I can disconnect from the artist me and, and the real me, even though they are totally entwined. But anyway, following design school, I promptly moved to Melbourne and got a job as an art director in publishing, which is where we met, mm-hmm. as you know, and did that for four years, I think. And that was great. Being a craft designer in fashion magazines and advertising. And, you know, I learned so much in that job. I was really so naive and fresh out of school. And yeah, along with yourself and our creative director, Richard De Silva, I really think, you know, you guys were both massive teachers for me at that point. I just learned so much. And then from there, I moved to New York in 2007 and pretty instantly got a, a job at a motion graphics company that was just launching called Favorite Color. And motion graphics was something I'd, I'd never really had any experience with. So again, I just sort of fell into that and I learned to turn on the job. And then not so long after that was the global financial crisis in 2008, which caused me to get laid off from that job. But at the same time, that pushed me into a freelance world. And so, yeah, basically I've been a freelance artist and designer in one way or another since 2008. So that was a real serendipitous kind of thing because I remember at the time being really upset and just thinking, oh my God, you know, is this going to affect my visa situation in the States? And as you are when you're 25 and you get laid off and you've never been laid off before and in a foreign country and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it didn't take long for me to get back on my feet and, yeah, instantly kind of jump into the, the New York City motion graphics freelance scene, which it is kind of a scene, I guess. It's You jump around all these studios and you get to see and meet Lots and lots of different freelancers. And yeah, it's pretty, it was pretty exciting. And then from there, the guy who had employed me at that first job in New York and also hooked me up with the first freelance contacts, a guy by the name of Casey Steele, him and I had remained in contact and, and he was an executive producer and he was at different companies as well. So I'd always worked for him at various studios. We decided to start our own company together. And so we did that in 2010, I believe. And that was called Manhattan Born. So that was, that ran as a design studio, motion graphics studio, and a little art gallery because we had a storefront space in the East Village of New York. And we did that for four years. We got a bunch of great clients, actually. We worked a lot with the Viacom networks. So VH1, MTV, BET and worked on many great projects during that time. Did some big digital billboards for Sephora, worked on the roast of Donald Trump. (laughs) And yeah, you know, we had had quite a bit of success with that. But it sort of got to a point where 
I think for both of us individually, we weren't in great places and that relationship started to deteriorate a little bit. And so we decided to close that down. It just sort of felt like it would run its natural path. We had a a commercial lease on that storefront space. So once that was finished, we, we decided to call it quits. And at that point I went, I went back freelancing again until I decided to move home to New Zealand in 2017, three years ago. And then since I wanted to make the shift to a full-time artist and a painter, and that was part of the reason I, I came home because I couldn't really get sponsorship to stay in the US as a painter because, you know, you need to be working for a company. Everything was just aligning. I just felt like New York wasn't as inspiring to me anymore. And Donald Trump had just got into the White House and it just sort of seemed like a good time to to end my, or put a hold on my New York story. So since then, I've, I've moved home and I've kind of been starting again, really, because I didn't really have any professional ties to New Zealand because I left when I was so young and I've never had a professional job here. So yeah, I've just been starting again as a painter, all the while as well, keeping up some freelance projects from time to time with with those same clients in New York, which has been great to help me fund this transition, obviously. So yeah, that's that's basically brings us up to now. Wow. So so many different things that are happening in, in what you've talked about, like going, you know, freelance, going to start your own business with somebody, going into partnership, that ending, starting again a few times. So like let's go back a little bit to the early 2000s when you said you'd sort of finished in Wellington at the design school and you had made the move to Melbourne. And a lot of Kiwis do make the move to Melbourne or Sydney or Perth or one of the biggest cities in Australia. How did you do that? Like, did you know people that were in Melbourne? What kind of advice would you give to say someone who's listening to this in New Zealand at the moment who might be thinking, you know what? Yep. I'm going to cross the ocean over to our neighbor. Yeah. So I, I did know a couple of people my sister and her former husband used to live over there and I'd visited and I really just fell in love with the city. I thought it was a, a great place and our largest city is Auckland, which comparatively to other places overseas is not really that big. And so for me, I, I just wanted that big city hustle bustle vibe and I just really loved Melbourne. I thought it was a really great place, it seemed very creative and so I think that was the main draw card. As far as advice, I think it's a good move for, for any Kiwi. And I think naturally we're quite curious as a, as a nation and, and do, because we're isolated at the bottom of the world, we, we have a natural tendency to want to go off and explore and just make that mark for ourselves overseas. And more often than not, we do come home when we're, you know, in our late thirties or what, after people have children or things like that. But it, I think it, I think it's a really good, a good step. There's a lot of opportunity and you just learn so much and, and meet so many more people. And I think with that, you become a little more well-rounded. I think your, your eyes get open a lot more, but I mean, in saying that too, back then we really didn't have that access to the internet as it is now. So if you were a kid from New Zealand, that was all you really knew unless you had traveled and experienced that stuff. Whereas, whereas now it's a little bit different, but you're still not getting those, those human and cultural experiences that you get from moving to a, a different country. 
But the one from New Zealand to Australia, it is a relatively easy one because same language, our cultures are similar enough that it's not totally frightening. And it is one of the few kind of dual country partnerships in the world where you actually can do that. So why not take advantage of that? Yeah, exactly. And and it's good that you brought up, you know, that when you moved, it was back in the day and we were working together at a magazine company and it was all print. Everything was print then. You know, there was no social media. We basically used the internet for email and some research purposes, but it wasn't, it was nothing like it was today. And actually one of the things is you were the, you were the very first person that I ever hired or like was part of the hiring process for. And I remember you had like, you had drawn kind of an image of yourself on like almost like a logo on your CV. I don't know if you remember this. I vaguely remember that. It really stood out. And I like we were, these were paper CVs. Oh, my God, we're so old. But <laughs> from there, you then, like, you know, we worked together and, and like you said before, I was a teacher and likewise, I feel exactly the same way about you and about Richard and about, you know, some other people that were there. Ben Wiles was an incredible source of sales information, advertising, how does it work, and so much other stuff that happened. but. You then decided that you were going to up and leave me, like hashtag sad face, and get to New York. And I remember at the time I was living in Carlton and you'd come over with pastries on Sunday morning and we'd talk about what New York was going to look like and we'd talk about how you were going to meet Madonna and all of those things. But when you said before you landed in New York and you got a job at Favourite Colour, what kind of pre-work had you done? Like had you been reaching out to companies whilst you were still in Australia before you got to New York and you kind of researched different things that you could work in? How did it, how did it get to the stage where you were like, yep, I'm in New York and I've got a job? Like what happened prior to that? And again, thinking about people that might be listening that have got a small business and obviously we're in Corona time, people aren't necessarily jumping, especially to New York right now, but things will open up again and travel is one of the greatest things that a business owner can do. But what did you do in sort of the pre-work or the prep to get a job in New York? Well, while I was at that job in Melbourne, I had started getting freelance illustration work for US magazines like Accelerator, Fast Company, Beautiful Decay. I think two of those are <laughs> defunct now. I was going to say Beautiful Decay was so huge back in the day. I don't yeah. know if it's still around. Yeah. And I, I often forget about that sort of part of my career, but for a little while I was kind of on a path to be more of like an editorial illustrator. So I had those contacts and I think perhaps having those contacts was something that actually made the move seem a little bit more tangible because I would often have calls with them to receive a brief and stuff and just Again, like back then, getting on the phone with someone like a creative director or an editor in the US, that seemed like, wow, like crazy. So I think that sort of experience already being a part of my life made it seem, you know, like it was something that I could actually achieve and would be, you know, in my wheelhouse. However, none of those contacts kind of came into fruition. I did before I left, maybe maybe even six months before I had done you know my due diligence reaching out to lots of design studios in New York and I got a lot of great response too as a whole I find or found that people in New York are really receptive to getting you know a cold call email and just reaching out yeah it was encouraging people were like I love the work when you get here shoot us an email look us up whatever 
And again, none of those really came through either. I mean, when, when I landed, I did basically the first few weeks just kind of hustled really and reached out to every contact I had and then just started reaching out to a whole bunch of new ones. And I would take meetings and I remember just going here, there and everywhere in those first few weeks, taking meetings with people, even if it wasn't going to be necessarily like a job that, you know, I could see something coming up in the future. It was just sort of that idea of meeting people and getting into that, into that groove and just really starting that ball rolling. And then the favorite color thing actually came out of, I think that that was posted on a job forum on motionographer.com, which is still a, a big website in, in the industry. And I applied for it. And that's one of the few times I've ever applied for a job in a pretty traditional setting like that, like sent a, a resume and I actually got a response. So yeah, that was pretty crazy. So that's how that came about. So I did do all of that, that hustle and reaching out to people, even though nothing directly came from it. I think if you think big picture, it's always helpful because it's making you feel more confident and you're just getting into that, into that flow of, yeah. of the new place. And yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things I love about you, and we talk about this, we've talked about this regularly in our friendship, is that both of us have a tendency to just reach out to people. And at the time that you were reaching out and doing like Beautiful Decay and Fast Company, I was also doing the same thing with like, I just want to, you know, I want to write for Refinery29. I'm going to run up to them and I'm going to write for this place and cool hunting. And, and I think even now I still work with, you know, a lot of small business owners who may be reluctant to contact an editor for say to get their interiors project put in and you just think you've just got to do it you know the worst they can say is no but most people aren't jerks they're not going to be rude to you they're just going to say no or they're just going to ignore you so it's a good reminder of of that story in new york about just getting out there and and reaching out to people because most people are genuinely nice people and they'll get back to you in some way yeah absolutely and i must say I, I really did learn that skill from you. You just made it seem really easy. And like you say, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And still to this day, I do the same thing. Now I'm doing it more with galleries or exhibition spaces and stuff like that. And I always think, you know, you email 10, you'll hear from two. Yeah. And like I was saying earlier with, you know, having the Be Modern name as a separation from Paul Dara, the person and Paul Dara, the artist it's a way to have that kind of disconnection where you're not, you're not being personally insulted if you don't get a response or if someone's not into your work, because it's like, at the end of the day, it's just business. So, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, and I, I know that's like a really hard thing to get over, especially if you are a younger person, because you do feel a little more insecure when it comes to your work and how you might be perceived in the industry if you don't have that much experience, but just do it, you know, like, yeah. Who, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even I say to some people, you know, just do it, send it off and shut your laptop and walk away and just mm. get distracted by other things. So also during your time in New York, so you reached out to people and you got these jobs and, and you did really well. And then you said you went into business with Casey. Casey, is that right? Mm-hmm. And you started a amazing business that so was called Manhattan Born and it was, you had like this awesome logo and you had, you know, apparel and, and cool accessories and you had this really great studio. What was it like? Because you're not from New York. You've just said that you're from New Zealand. 
And New York has to be one of the most competitive places in the world to start a business, particularly kind of in that graphics and design sort of space. Like there, I would imagine that there are literally millions of studios. And not to mention as well during a recession. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Another tick up there. So how did that actually happen? And like, how did you, you know, was it kind of reliant on Casey being, he was American, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so did he know how to even, you know, get into commercial property to rent somewhere? Like how did that all happen? I lived in London for five years and I worked for other people. I worked for myself for some of it, but I was basically, you know, doing that all through my Australian business that I'd had before I left. I would imagine, how do you even know where to start when you're not from that place? Like it's a completely different tax system, a completely different, you know, LLC system. Like how did that start? Right. So first of all, I think it was really born out of, us both being freelance and like I said, he was an executive producer and Casey was also probably, I'll say 10 years older, maybe more, maybe less, but he'd had, he'd had quite a lot more experience. He'd been working out in LA for a long time doing, yeah, in motion graphics companies and doing graphics on movies and stuff. I always felt, and I think because I was a lot younger, I always kind of felt like, he was a bit more like the dad mm-hmm. in a way. And because he was a US citizen, he did take care of more of the business side of stuff, like setting up the LLC. So technically, like I was an employee of Manhattan Born, which was under his name. And that was also for so that we could sponsor me through the company. Mm-hmm. So that was how I was also able to work legally in, in the US. But it, it was really born out of us both just being sort of in a way would, you know, be freelancing at these studios and just be like, why aren't we just doing this ourselves? Also, we, we were both outsiders in a way, because like I said, he was from LA and had moved out to New York to set up Favorite Color. He was headhunted to do that job. And then I was one of the first people he employed. So our New York journey pretty much started at the same time. Mm-hmm. And we called it Manhattan Born for a couple of reasons because our idea was born in Manhattan. Not that we were born there, but our idea to do this company together. And for anyone that's had a company, it is a kind of, you do in a way give birth to it and you raise it and you have to feed it and make it grow like a child. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Obviously not, not as um, <laughs> you get more sleep. I'm sure. Sometimes, but, sometimes yeah. keeping you awake just the same with the baby. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And then also the other thing, just a side note about the name and the logo actually came from the manhole covers all over Manhattan. And if you can picture in a circle, the words Manhattan, and then from the other end, B-O-R, which stands for borough, borough of Manhattan, but the N of B-O-R connects with the N at the end of Manhattan. So they read Manhattan born in the circle. So that was kind of the genesis of the name and the logo. And then, yeah, as far as the things like commercial real estate and reaching out to clients and getting to do all this sort of fancy stuff, we just really learned by the seat of our pants. And I remember we would often just laugh being like, can you believe we're even doing this? Like, can you believe people are trusting us with, you know, their brands and to do a, you know, 16-story billboard in Times Square? We often just couldn't believe our our situation, which I think like that sort of 
lightheartedness and tenacity a little bit in a way and maybe naivete, it was a blessing because we didn't take ourselves too seriously. We didn't get too caught up in, in what was actually going on. We just did it, you know. And I think also they say that quote, I can't remember who said it, necessity is the mother of all invention. I think the fact mm. that you know, it was the downturn, the global financial crisis, you both were out of work. It was like, this needs to work. Like I feel like, and so you probably weren't caught up in as much as like, oh my gosh, we've got MTV. It was like, great, we've got MTV, but that is also great because we've got a certain amount of money coming in and we can support ourselves. Right, right. And it was really that thing of you just take little steps. And this is the same for, I guess, any business owner that doesn't have, you know, a huge amount of background funding or whatever. You just take little steps. And then after a couple of years, you look back and you're like, wow, I've, you know, I'm at this new height. But mm-hmm. when, you're in, when you're in it, you're not really thinking about it. You're just doing the daily grind and and making sure that, you know, you're getting those jobs, you're sending those invoices, you're getting the production done. Yeah. Yeah. And you did, having said all of that, you did work for some massive names or with some massive names. So I remember when you were like, I'm helping with like a Rihanna film clip. And I was like, are you serious? Like amazing. And it was just sort of another job for you. And like you said before, you know, like you had to work with, everyone's favorite person. I'm totally joking. He is the worst person in the world, which is, you know, Donald Trump. And you did have huge things in Times Square. So what was that like to work with some of these kind of celebrities or massive names? And how has that impacted your, you know, future career as well? So like, what were the kind of ones that you learned the most? Or what was it like for a guy from Matamata, which is what like population of 7,000 people? to be in Times Square looking up at like a massive billboard that you've created? Like what was that like? And, and can you talk us through some of those projects? Yeah. So there were little moments of reflections where I would be standing beneath something really massive like that and, and just thinking, wow, like I feel like I'm living my dream. Because for me, the idea of being a designer in New York had been my literal dream since I had been a child. Yeah, there definitely were those pinch yourself moments, but you just let yourself enjoy them because it's like, well, you you got here, enjoy the moment and then, you know, move on. What's the next thing? The Trump one was definitely pretty crazy. And then now looking back, it's even more surreal. So that was the opening title sequence. And this was one of our very, very first jobs too, by the way for Comedy Central's Roast of Donald Trump. And so it was the opening sequence, which essentially was a parody of the Prodigy music video, Smack My Bitch Up. I don't know if you remember that, but it was this journey of this woman shot point of view over one night. And so our concept was a journey in the day of life of Donald Trump shot point of view. So when we were actually producing this thing, we had all access to Trump Tower. You know, we're all up and down there. We had, because he owned the Miss America franchise, Miss America at the time was part of it. We got to meet Ivanka. We were downstairs in the basement where they shot The Apprentice. And concurrently, Comedy Central was doing their entire promotional shoot for this thing down in The Apprentice stage with Donald Trump. So we had, we needed him for a couple of the gags at the end when the camera sort of like looks in the reflection of his limousine 
and the reflection is him back. That was kind of like the big reveal at the end. So we had access to him for, it was like a minute or something. Like we had allocated like, okay, you can have him for like 60 seconds or whatever, mm-hmm. just to get that, that shot. And, you know, I, I was completely intimidated and I've never directed anything live action before. So all day I had a crew of, you know, 15, 20 people, lighting, cameramen, you know, stand-in actors, all, all these people. So I was just like, I actually felt really out of my depth. And then, yeah, when we had to shoot with him, I just remember him looking at me. He looked at me just like I was the scum of the earth. Like I was just nothing. I, I'll, I'll never forget that because he is really tall and he has this very imposing presence. And then not to mention, you know, it was all into lighting and there was a million people buzzing around him and makeup on him. And so it, I was very intimidated. And then also in that shoot, we had to go on a helicopter or around Manhattan getting like skyline shots. So it was just a really huge, crazy day that I'll never forget. And, but it was very, very stressful, like mm-hmm. between the client from the production company and then the clients from Comedy Central, we just really felt like stressed. <laughs> Yeah, it was a good experience. But after doing that, I was kind of like, I don't really know if I like doing this sort of like live action thing, dealing with celebrities. It's it's a lot. So yeah, I suppose that was kind of like one takeaway. So from then on, it was more kind of about just graphics and not having to, <laughs> not having to deal with these big egos and stuff as much. The Rihanna job, that was not through Manhattan-born. That was through a studio called Click3X before I started the company. And that she was had been shot like, with a director out in LA. And, and then our team in New York were, were doing all the, the graphics for you know, the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So that, wasn't, that was more just you know, sitting in an office working yeah. on that. Yeah. 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 I mean, but it would have still been like when I watch that video clip now and I always think of you and I'm like, oh, you know. It's, it's yeah. interesting to be like, wow, you know, you were sitting in the office, but it was still like this huge video clip for an amazing, huge celebrity. And- yeah, absolutely. And I remember at the time too, I, I was on a full-time gig with a studio called Into Spectacular and I was approached to, to do the Rihanna video because they thought my aesthetic would suit what the director had wanted for that look because it was bright and like crazy graphics and stuff. And so I'm, I was moonlighting for that job and I was like, yeah, absolutely. Just because who wouldn't want to work on that? It was so much fun. So if, even though I was up till, you know, two, three, four in the morning working on that, it was definitely worth it. And still to this day, you know, I, that job's still on my website and I, I really love it. Yeah. And it's funny though that you said, you know, with the issue with Donald Trump or other celebrities, I think sometimes because you and I had worked in fashion, you know, and then I've continued to work in that and interview people in that and be at campaigns. And sometimes it can seem from the outset like, oh, it's so, gl- <laughs> so glamorous. And it's not. It's just so much waiting around and so much, has the coffee order been done? And like, mm. model happy? Or is this celebrity okay right now? And it's just, people can see the glamorous side of it. And while it does, you know, help your career and, you know, those are good kind of things to name drop sometimes, it is a lot of hard work and a lot of just tedious work as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And with anything, you know, live action, as you know as well from working on photo shoots, it's always that you versus the clock because time is money. So a model has to be out by this stage. Otherwise, you know, you get an char- extra charge and same with the photographer. And 
Yeah. And you've got everybody's opinions as well. So if Mm. I'd be like the producer kind of on on a shoot and you'd have, you know, this timesheet and and specs and everything that you need to get, you know, this image for social media and this image for the back and you get crazy amount to fly some model in from New York and you've got their agent sitting there being like, you can't ask them that, you can't ask them this. And yeah, it can seem fun. And and looking back, you do like you remember the fun parts, but I guess it's kind of like childbirth. (laughs) Like you go back to do it again, but when you're in it, you're like, God, this is hard. Absolutely. <laughs> so from that, you sort of said, you know, like you, you decided to focus more on the graphics and less on the kind of celebrity live action sort of world. But then you have moved more and more into art and, and just creating art more as your business. And I know when I visited you in New York, I visited you a couple of times while you were living there, you were painting a lot and you've you've always done this, you've always created, but you seem to have shifted a lot more into doing that as a career and as a business rather than this is just, you know, a creative outlet that I have. So can you talk us through how you decided to move more from I'm working in studios or I'm freelancing to, okay, I'm really going to give this art a shot. Like I'm going to, you know, contact galleries, I'm going to get exhibitions. How did that kind of come about? Yeah, so I had always had that love of painting, but yeah, I was one of those people that was like, I don't know if I can make you know, a career or a living out of this and yada, yada, yada. Pretty common story. So, but then actually what happened in 2015, sort of that whole year for me was not great. And I had like, I was drinking a lot and things were just, you know, getting to a bad place. And they kind of came to a head almost around the end of the year in October. And I pulled turkey, gave up drinking, which had kind of been a bit of a demon most of my adult life. I, you know, was still highly functioning, but I always kind of knew like, mm, you know, naughty, naughty, <laughs> you're going to have to deal with this at some point or another. And I finally did. And for anyone who's been through that journey before, you know, you go through a lot of, just sort of like, who am I? To quote Zoolander. And, you know, for me, it was really like, what's important in my life and, and what do I want to do? So with that came this idea of, yeah, I'm sick of kind of contributing to somebody else's dream, which was doing the whole graphics thing. And even though I was working for great companies and with awesome brands and great projects, at the end of the day, no one's looking at it being like, oh, that's Paul Darrow's artwork. You know what I mean? And also, you're, you're so restricted because, you know, things have to be on brand and, you know, it has to be these colors and whatever. So with that sobriety came so much clarity and I think a big shift in confidence too. So I was able to realize, you know what, I want to I wanna make this move. I want to be a painter. And then from there as well, along more of that clarity came that shift of I should go home. I should find like, I, I need to go back to my roots. You know what I mean? So that was really how that came about. And living on a visa, you always have to sort of plan about a year out to make your next move because it takes about that long to, to get a new one. So end of 2015, being aware that my visa would expire June, 2017, I made that decision I kept on working freelance. I actually had a really great job at a studio called Fake Love in Brooklyn and working on great projects. So I was working hard on that. And then in nights and weekends, I was painting. And the painting almost worked as a massive 
kind of catharsis too for dealing with this whole sobriety and all that change. Yeah, so everything just kind of aligned, I suppose. The painting helped me deal with that kind of rehabilitation and get that clarity to realize you can move home. Like, you don't have to be this person anymore. I always think of it as my Dorothy Wizard of Oz moment where, yeah, I could kind of click my heels three times and, and realize home is where the heart is, sort of. Mm-hmm. You did move home. And so in 2017, I was super excited because even though it's still another country, sometimes I think New Zealand's like just another state of Australia. I know I'm going to like have all these haters from New Zealand be like, we are not. But I was just really <laughs> happy that it's we were. so close there. So close. And the same, you know, similar time zone, all of that stuff. So I was delighted because I'd also moved home from London to here and I was really excited. So you moved back after 10 years in New York. Can you talk us through that? Because I know that when I moved back from London, we moved back home and there was just this whole sort of like, oh, okay, like, wow, I thought everything had just stayed still for the last four and a half years and and then and it hadn't. And I found it kind of hard. I think it took a little while to kind of settle back in Melbourne and I moved back into Melbourne city. So it's one city to another city, but you've moved from you know New York, hustle bustle into Matamata, which is a very small rural town in New Zealand. Your parents have a farm and you built your actual own house. So if you built this incredible barn, which is just beautiful, what was that like going from New York straight in? It wasn't like you had a stopover somewhere to kind of acclimatize yourself. It was like, I'm going from one of the most densely populated in the world, cities in the world to, to a rural farm. Yeah. So Kind of after I'd made the decision to move home and I was talking to my parents and they had brought up this track that they, they, they were already building this barn on, we call it the barn, but it's like, well, now it's sort of an apartment and workspace and storage facility thing. But, you know, it's shaped like a kind of colonial American barn and, and they were already building that just as sort of more storage space, extra garage and extra place for a guest to sleep or whatever. And upon hearing that, I was like, hmm, maybe I could live there and <laughs> kind of, yeah, stole my parents' little idea for more, more room. But it was more in part to do, I thought that I would have more of a culture shock moving from New York to Auckland or Wellington, just because they're such small cities. And going from New York to rural farm town, and being in the country, you just can't compare it. So I wouldn't always, I, I felt like if I had gone to Auckland, I would have always been like, this is, you know, so lame. No offense to Auckland, but it just is so much smaller and, you mm-hmm. know, you just can't compare it. Whereas moving to Metameta, I'm just like, yeah, I can't compare it. Like, I know I'm going to the country. I know it's going to be quiet. I know there's nothing to do, all that kind of stuff. And I think I also knew because I still felt like I had a lot of kind of healing and kind of finding myself. And, you know, it was a real transitional time in my life. So I thought it would be better to really, yeah, get back to the place where it all started because it's literally the place where I grew up as well. And yeah, connect with family again, connect with, like I said, connect with my roots and just sort of figure out who I am and, and what this next journey is about and just kind of have a bit of a safety net for the first time in like my adult life too, of not having to feel like, you know, sink or swim. 
that thing of just being like, oh, I want to be, <laughs> I want to be close to my parents for a little while. Yeah, because I didn't have a partner or anything like that. And it really worked. And it, it was a huge transition still. Like, I definitely had to come down in many ways. Like, looking back now, I think I definitely had an attitude, which, you know, in part is just, you get that just from living in New York and, and working on all this stuff and being around that energy all the time. And then kind of coming back and you kind of realize, like, no one cares. No one cares that you've done all that stuff. And who are you trying to impress and all that, all those sorts of things. And really just getting to a place of being content in your own skin and in your own mind. And yeah, so that was, that was a large part of that. And then at the same time, yeah, it gave me an opportunity to, to really start the whole painting move without having to, you know, because swapping careers, you know, in your thirties is hard no matter what you do, but to be a painter where it's like notorious for not earning any money, it just seemed kind of like a practical thing to do as well. Yeah. And on that note, so you have in the last few years, you've you've totally shifted to full-time artist or painter and you've had your art exhibited in Melbourne, in Miami, in New York, in New Zealand, you've alluded to some of them, but what kind of mindset challenges have you had to overcome? Like, have you, do you still have thoughts around, oh my God, like, how am I going to make money? Like, even though you are living in New Zealand and and you've since moved from the farm and you live with your partner now somewhere else in New Zealand. But did you think about, oh, you know what, maybe I'll just keep doing design work. Art can wait. Maybe I'll do it when I'm retired. Or did those kind of things come through your mind at all? Or what were the kind of obstacles that you've had to overcome from a mindset perspective to be a So you really have to tune out a lot of the noise because you have so much self-doubt when you're in that position of, am I even good? Like, will this even work? You know, all those, all those types of things. And I feel like as well, the art scene is pretty competitive and sort of hard to get into anywhere, I would think. And then in New Zealand, because it's a lot smaller and everybody knows everybody, and you're all fighting for the same resources and things like that. I think that people aren't necessarily as obliged to give you a massive helping hand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no disrespect to anybody else. It's like I said, you're all fighting for the same, you know, small part of the pie or whatever. And also, I not only am a new guy, I had to kind of think of myself as I'm just going to art school now in a way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm a fast learner and then, yeah, I've always had done the hustle pretty well. So I've fast tracked things as far as, you know, getting solo exhibitions and stuff like that. But you really just have to believe in yourself and just remember in two years from now, who knows what this new career or this new path is going to look like. And it's, it's almost that same thing like I was talking about when we did Manhattan Born is you just take it day by day and step by step. And and an amazing piece of advice that my mom gave me actually when I moved back and was starting this process was take the path of least resistance, meaning find your people. And, And I actually think Brene Brown kind of talks about this too. The people that are open and receptive to your work, go with them. And even if they're not the coolest people, the people who you thought, you know, who you imagined you want to be in your slide, 
they're the people who are already there saying, hey, I love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then the people who aren't, and maybe they're the cool people that you thought you wanted, you know, around, they're shooting you down or just not even responding or not giving you anything. So don't like just stop pursuing them. So, you know, that's been a, a large part of my journey since I've been back. And actually, I have been listening to Conan O'Brien's podcast recently where he interviews all these amazing people. And I can't remember who, who he was talking to, but they both had children and they were talking about that's the thing they want for their kids, like teenage kids. It's like, you know, just wait till you find your people. No matter what it is that you do, if it's like science, if you're like a coder or whatever, just wait until you find your people and then everything kind of opens up. And so I've kind of been coming into that phase now, which is, which is, that's really amazing. It's humbling and it's like, it's awesome. And it just makes you want to be that person for someone else too. Yeah, totally, totally. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And that whole like cultivate the right supportive network, that's something I talk about a lot and actually have talked about on this podcast as well. But I completely agree. And like I find that, you know, you are you are definitely part of my people. Likewise. Oh, and and Sue Dara, your mum, is a very intelligent, lovely woman. And speaking of your folks, you know, like they are absolutely awesome. I've met them. I've had the pleasure of staying there with them. But can you tell us a little bit about what was your upbringing like? So often I want to know when I ask this question, you know, was this something that your parents were very, I guess, supportive or do, were your parents a bit into art and so therefore you saw it as a you could be more trained to see that as a viable option versus say someone who was like you need to be a doctor or a lawyer like what was the upbringing that you had like and how do you think that has influenced your career to date yeah so mum and dad have always said to my brother and sister and I just do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy and so they've, they've always been completely supportive of everything I've done in my life. There's never been any resistance. There's never been, you know, don't become an artist, become a doctor or whatever. So that's been really great. And my mother's pretty artistic too. After she was a school teacher and she retired fairly early, I think she was, you know, in her mid-40s when she retired and then started doing a painting course remotely to achieve like a, a diploma, I think. And then she always, she was always in photography. And so there was always that creativity there. And then my dad's a musician too, and kind of a poet as, you know, as well as being a farmer. So these sort of like ideas of eccentric people and, you know, artsy fartsy <laughs> crowds, you know, they were always kind of present growing up. It's not like that was, an, you know, a, an unusual concept to, to grasp. And then also, you know, when in 1989, I think, as a family, we took a holiday to the U.S. and we went to New York. And that was a life-changing experience because I remember even as a six or seven-year-old on that trip, I remember thinking, I am going to live here one day. This is, this is my goal. Mm-hmm. So that started really early. And yeah, as a kid, I was... Mum said to me the other day, she was like, you were kind of like a funny kid because you kind of spoke almost like an adult and you were almost a bit more interested to hang out with the adults and the, chil- and the children. Mm-hmm. And it's like I've always been a designer or an artist. And it was either drawing house plans as a six-year-old or making stop-motion movies or all those types of things I was doing from a young age. And then when I was a teenager, I was you know, really into 
bands and Sonic Youth was my favorite band. And so I started a website for them, you know, at the dawn of the internet, basically, which became super, super popular worldwide to the extent that their record label started sending me all of their latest releases from New York as kind of a thank you for doing this. Like a promotion, really. Promotion for them, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, those kinds of things just came really naturally to me. And then also another thing is there's this magazine, it's not around anymore, but it was called Index. And that basically documented all of the kind of 90s downtown New York City culture. And I didn't know how, but the local bookshop in my town had it. And it was only ever one copy a week, a month, and I, I would always get it. And that entire culture of that NYC cool well, I was always transfixed with it, you know, from a young from a young age. So it was just kind of inev- inevitable that I would end up there. And it just it just makes me think too, you know, you are who you are from from birth, and you just you're, you're born with that spark, and you just have to tune into that and follow that, and that that will give you more of a, a happy life, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've watched that UK documentary series Seven Up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of my favourite things. I mean, I just love all of those things. I love, like, the Stanford University. They've done the Happiness Project with the same people for, like, 75 years. I just like that documentation of people from in the 7-Up series from when they're seven, you know, every seven years until they're in their 70s now. And I think at the start of it they have, like, a quote of the narrator saying, give me a child at seven and I'll show you the man or something. So sort of saying, like, whoever you are by seven lots of those traits will continue all through your life. And it's just you tapping back into that and being like, yeah, what was I like as a child? And how can I kind of develop some of those traits and, and things again, rather than hide from them or diminish them as you get older and more societal pressures to not do things like, for instance, art or make right. And that's really interesting. You should say that too, because I've always, I think about this kind of occurred to me a couple of years ago and it was when listening to the intro, which is a guitar solo by Prince at the intro of Madonna's Express Yourself, mm-hmm. it gave me really hardcore deja vu, like almost transformative. And it put me back to me as a six-year-old. And I just remember feeling so entirely complete and whole and happy in, in this little creative being that has kind of been my goal to get back to that place because it's like you're born like that. Yeah. And then like you say, you get all of the indoctrination from society. Then you you put all these guards and layers and all these things on. And then now I feel like I I'm trying to strip all those layers away to get back to that, that essence. You know what I mean? And when you find that that's your pure creative self, that's when you're, the work that you're making then is 100% unique because that's coming from your soul. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And even like in a marketing perspective, you know, I'm always one of the things that I talk about regularly at speaking events or whatever is, you know, humanizing your brand. And it's always like there's only, you know, it sounds so cliche, but there's only one you. There's 7 billion people on the planet. And, you know, like for instance with me, there's a billion and one business coaches. There's a billion and one marketing consultants. But it's like what about you makes your story different and then how can you share that with the world because that is what's going to set you apart. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is, it is difficult too. And it, even now I struggle with it. Like 
as an artist, you know, and I've been formulating my aesthetic over the last few years, but, you know, we're always exposed to so much visual media now and Instagram and all that. And you can't help but like look at other artists or other whatever it is that you do and do that terrible compare yourself thing or take on those influences. And it's like, yeah, it's so hard to shut that noise off, but you, you really just have to. I mean, it's great to be aware of everything that's going on in the world, but you just can't really let it penetrate into how you, like, you do what you do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you've talked about just then, you know, social media and you've talked about these magazines that helped you, you know, back in the day and, and just sort of the inspiration. What else do you think has helped you building the various businesses? So like, have you had any mentors? Do you listen? I mean, you mentioned a Conan O'Brien podcast. Are there kind of books or, or mantras or anything else that's really helped you on your business journey that you might share so that someone else might be helped by it? Yeah, well, I think the main one for me has been other people, whether that be colleagues or bosses or, yeah, or even friends. And I think the important thing there is just to recognize who those people are in your life. And when you come across them, really just tune in and listen and learn and never be too proud to kind of show that vulnerability and, and ask and stuff. Because for me, I think, like I said, there's you and there's Richard, but there's other people too in, in completely different industries. Like one person that comes to mind is my friend and former employee, Sway, who is a restaurateur in Melbourne. And, you know, back before I got the job working with you, I was a waiter working for her. And subliminally, I think... I have absorbed just how she's an awesome business owner and operator. And I just think like how much a person like her is influenced me in like a business sense too. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just how, you know, treating your, your staff or your colleagues or whatever. Yeah. Just look around. Lots of people do things with their eyes closed all the time. And basically everything you need is already at your fingertips. It's just a matter of tuning in, you know, which energies you have to, you know, really get into and, yeah. and which one, and at the same breath, which ones to ignore, which ones are negative. Yeah. yeah. Like for, for, for me, the process of becoming a more well-rounded and whole human is very closely linked to the kind of business side too. Maybe it's more because of the nature of what I do, but it's also like what you were talking about, like find a way to humanize your brand. So for instance, I'm a big advocate of meditation, big ad- advocate of exercise all those daily routines that just make your mind better. Cause at the end of the day, you know, that's what's running your business. Yeah, totally. Totally. One of the things that, yeah, I'll just share this quick story. Cause it just reminded me when you were talking, I think that you never want to be too proud to learn from other people as well. Like no matter who they are and, and what their experience level is or if they've got opinions or things that can help you. When I started my business and I, you know, put it on, I put my daily business coach on Instagram and I didn't really tell people about it. And I instantly had a bunch of kind of, I guess you could call them competitors. So other business coaches contact me and be like, oh, who's this new kid on the block kind of thing. And one in particular was like, oh, we should catch up. And and so I was like, okay, great. You know, like, yep, I'm going to catch up with you. And so she was like, call me at this time. And so I called her when I called her, she was really like, who are you? Sorry. Like, 
And it was just sort of negative. And then she was like, oh, you should come out for lunch with these women. They're all amazing. And I think it's a great networking opportunity for you. And then she said something which has stayed with me forever in a kind of never ever do this, Fiona. (laughs) She said to me, now, when you come to lunch, these women are really experienced in what they do. So I don't want you talking much. I think that you know, it's a great opportunity for you to come and learn, but I don't think that like you've just started. So like, don't really give your opinion kind of thing. And I remember just being like, wow, you know, you're basing everything off my Instagram that maybe had like 10 people following it. You're sort of, you're equating that, oh, she's got 10 followers, therefore she doesn't know what she's doing. And I remember going to the lunch and I actually ended up knowing quite a few of the people at the lunch who were like, oh my God, Fiona should get in this conversation and she should help us, you know, brainstorm this. And I remember just forever it stayed with me and I'm like, I will never, ever, ever let somebody else feel like that about themselves because somebody who didn't know what they do told them not to talk up at a table. Like mm. I just, just always remember that. And, I, and I, I've seen that person, you know, and I think, you know, well done to her and her business, but I just think it's such a bad mistake to make and think that, oh, you know, just because this person is new in their business or that they don't have something to bring to the table. So, yeah, just, a, just a, for people who are listening, like never, ever dismiss somebody else's opinion or, you know, the opportunity that you could learn from people regardless of where they sit in the experience level. Mm, absolutely. And on the flip side of that too, as the person that perhaps has little or no experience. <laughs> I always felt like, especially, you know, when I sort of first moved to New York and the first few years, actually, because as I said, the motion graphics industry was something I hadn't done before. And so I felt like I was really out of my league, even though all they wanted was design. Like I wasn't animating or anything. I, they, I was employed to be a designer. And I had already been designing, you know, all my life. So I was more than well prepared to do that job. But it was all the kind of noise and almost like pretense around the way these people would talk and that seemed really confident and that use these terms and buzzwords and, mm-hmm. and it made me feel really inadequate. And, you know, I, I've, I've dealt with that sort of feeling a lot in my life, like in, in a professional sense, but you have to realize sometimes that these people also don't know what they're talking about. They're just putting on a good show. <laughs> and actually, I must say, when I had that moment of when I became sober and, and had all this clarity, I kind of realized, like, actually, no one knows what they're talking about. <laughs> it's just different degrees of faking it. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that that can make other people feel really insecure and not worthy. Yeah. So I would say to anybody out there that feels like that, chances are you probably already do know. You know, there's always going to be technical things, but you can learn them along the way. It's your your vision really is what a business is. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so talking to your younger self, like what is one thing that you would have done differently if you were starting out now? So if you were, you know, if you, you were back to the Paul Darrow of the early 2000s, what kind of advice or what's one thing that you do differently? Yeah, I felt that, I've thought about this a lot, actually. And mostly I wouldn't change a thing. But one thing that could have helped me and I think is a good piece of advice is just to be kind and treat everybody well because you never, ever know what that person is going to be in the future and how they might like relate to you and your business. So just never 
burn a bridge. Unless someone is just an absolute terrible person, then fine. But just always treat everybody with kindness, I think. Yeah, always, you know, that whole treat them as you'd like to be treated. Trying to instill that in my son constantly at the moment, my seven-year-old. He treats everyone outside <laughs> the house lovely. Actually, I shouldn't say that. He's a lovely, lovely child. But, yeah, you do have that whole, like, that was drummed into me from day dot with my dad in particular was always, like, be kind. You never know what someone's going through. And not that I was a terrible person to <laughs> a bunch <laughs> totally of people, but you, ne- you never know in the future that that person may become the CEO of some company that you and you really want them as a client or something. Yeah, so, yeah. that actually happened to me. I used to have a column in the Sunday social column. And so I was in with a lot of publicists who wanted, you know, this is before social media. So that was one of the key ways for them to get, you know, their clients or the latest footballer or the footballer's wife or whoever into the social pages. And so they were always, you know, my best friend throughout me being the social columnist. And a lot of them have remained really great friends, but quite a few, as soon as I stopped doing that job, were very much like, nope, you're nothing to me. I don't need anything from you. And then actually when I moved into a head of marketing role, I managed three teams. One was content, one was digital, and one was the PR team. And we actually needed to hire a PR manager. And quite a few of those people applied. And it was really interesting to have that dynamic again and be like, wow, you know, like when you sort of... Look how the tables are turned. Yeah, yeah. And, And we ended up hiring somebody who was fantastic. But I totally agree. You just never know. And just be kind, like just be a nice human. Like that's really what it boils down to. Yeah, it makes things easier. It alleviates anxiety and yeah. Yeah. And so what is next for you? And thank you so much for your time this morning, but like what is next for you and how can people connect with you? And if they've heard something and they're like, oh my gosh, I really need to tell Paul that that really touched me or impacted me, or I love that he said this, how can they connect with you? So Instagram would be the best way. My handle is bmodern1. And then, yeah, my website, bmodern.co.nz. But yeah, coming up, I have in a solo show in Wanganui, New Zealand in October, and then another one in January in Morrinsville, New Zealand at the Wallace Gallery. And then my show that was supposed to be in Melbourne in April now looks like it's going to be February, depending on the COVID situation. I've also just recently taken up residence at a really amazing institution here in Tauranga called The Incubator. And they have some amazing studios. They have amazing galleries. Those studios are generally open, you know, every day, 10 till 3 to the public just to come by and come into my studio and say hello. Awesome. Thank you. We'll add all of those in the show notes as always. But yeah, thank you so much, Paul. Obviously, we have talked for a while, but (laughs) we could just talk for hours and hours now. Is that what we do? Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Bye. Bye. Oh, I so love chatting with Paul. Always just so much gold in his words. Every time I have a conversation with him, and I do have them (laughs) regularly, I often call him when I'm doing my morning walk at like 6.30 in the morning, which is 8.30 over his time. And we have these really good conversations and I always find just a new way of approaching things after I chat to him. So I'd love to know what did you most take away from our conversation? For me, two things that stood out. The first is Paul's ambition, and we can often see that word ambition in kind of a negative light, but when I'm saying it about Paul, I mean it in the 
best possible way. He is a really ambitious person. And when you talk to him and when you can feel that energy, it makes you want to be ambitious too. And it makes you want to go out and find things that light you up and and have a go at doing them. Even if he wasn't always 100% confident, he would reach out to people to seek work, even when it seemed impossible of even getting a response. And it was this attitude, this idea that the worst someone can say is no, that led him to getting his art and graphics into some of the most respected publications at the time. Even now, moving back to New Zealand and switching careers and having to start from scratch, really, and finding galleries and finding these people and pitching exhibitions, he has that same drive, that same determination and want to make it happen. And I absolutely love that about Paul. The second thing that really stood out to me with this chat was his sense of coming home and finding himself, finding himself without the big New York agency work attached, you know, just being able to uncover who am I when you strip away all the things I've been able to achieve in my working life? Who am I? What makes me happy? What makes me content? What do I need right now? And he talked about, you know, needing to be around his parents right now. And I definitely relate to that. And his parents are amazing. They're like super cool. Everyone, (laughs) everyone would want to be around them. And he's very lucky to have them. But I think that for Paul, the answer of who am I and what makes me happy has always been to do with creating and designing and painting and making, doing things that bring beauty and bring curiosity into the world and into the audience that is looking at them. He is someone who will always be doing that regardless of what else is happening. He has this innate desire to create and to stay curious. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I would love to know what you took away most from our chat, and I'm sure that Paul would too. So you can definitely find us both on Instagram. Paul is at bmodern1 as just the numeral one, and I'm at my daily business coach. As always, if you're listening to this on the go and you'd love to go and read this or or have a bit more time to digest it in text format, we do share the full transcript and show notes over at mydailybusinesscoach.com forward slash podcast forward slash 42 as this is episode 42. And as always, if you love this show, I'd love it if you could leave a review. It just helps other small business owners find this podcast and hopefully they get inspiration and motivation from these stories as well. Thank you so much. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the My Daily Business Coach podcast. If you want to get in touch, you can do that at mydailybusinesscoach.com or hit me up on Instagram at mydailybusinesscoach. 